Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nimity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustark. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. For anyone listening to this podcast, the name Max Schrem should ring a bell. And also NOIB, an acronym for none of your business, probably sounds familiar. NOIB is the consumer rights group founded by Max Schrems. Based in Vienna, this data protection watchdog likes to put major topics on the plate of the data protection authorities and the courts. From forced consent to shady cookie banners and from advertising and dating apps to, yes, indeed, international transfers. Our guest today, Romain Robert, is the program director and the senior lawyer for NOIP, actively participating in their research and litigation strategy. Romain is also a member of the litigation chamber of the Belgian Data Protection Authority, and previously worked as a legal advisor for both the Belgian DPA and the European Data Protection Supervisor. I'm sure we are in for a great conversation on enforcing the GDPR, e-privacy, and how to best protect the fundamental right to data protection. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So thank you so much for joining us today. I have a feeling it's going to be a fabulous conversation. I'm, I'm sensing some good personality vibes going on already. <laughs> so are you ready for the unexpected question? I'm almost ready. Thank you for having me. <laughs> He's like almost ready. <laughs> I hope I'm ready. We will see it later. I don't know. It is so cool to hear this introduction that I hear every day on my, every week on my biking trip to the office. You know, I'm Paul Bradbart and I'm Kay Real. And it's real. You really exist. I can see you. Yes. <laughs> we really, really exist. And, yeah. and now you have a face to go along with the rolling eyes you hear so much. Okay, beautiful. The unexpected question is, what is your favorite brunch food? I think, ah, oh, that's an interesting one. I think I had it last Sunday, actually. I had avocado lax, so salmon, salmon, and I think the most important, and I think that was that was the thing that just decided me. There was a glass of prosecco with the brunch on Sunday, so I think this the fish, avocado, and prosecco was the perfect combination for me. I'm not used to drink on a Sunday at noon. But I think it was really the most interesting You're also part not opposed. of it. I'm not opposed to that yet. I don't have a policy about it. <laughs> what about you, Paul? Back to the Kay and Paul cooking show. Yes, back to the cooking show. Well, avocado and salmon sounds really good. I think for me, it would be probably salmon ex Benedict because I'm not very good at poaching eggs. So somebody else poaching an egg and making some some... Some bayonets would be really nice, or hollandaise, and and that would that would probably be my first option. Although I must say that the Danish schnurrebrot that I had during my vacation, all kinds of rye bread sandwiches, open sandwiches with all kinds of different toppings, 
That is a very good second best. Ooh. All right, I'm going to be a putz here. Mine's going to be the gluten-free Belgian waffles, although I don't know how close to Belgium the Belgian waffles are. What can you repeat? I'm so offended. <laughs> gluten-free Belgian waffles? You know that I'm Belgian, right? So it's on purpose. <laughs> nice. My God, you didn't say that. Yes. <laughs> I cannot believe that. Yes. With powdered sugar and berries. I don't like I don't like syrup. Okay. Even better because you know Belgian waffles should not be eaten with anything else. No white cream, no chocolate. It is just for tourists. The real one is without anything. Ooh. But do y'all put... Okay. Do they put stuff in the waffles? No, just sugar. Just plain Sugar waffle. and again sugar and sugar. But definitely gluten. <laughs> Listen, I, 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 I'm, I just hope that you're going to be at the IPP in Brussels in November. I'm hoping. Keeping okay, my fingers crossed. Okay, if I meet you there, I would just bring you a real Belgian waffles. I'm, I'm going to hold you to that. I'm going to hold okay. you to it. Okay. Deal. We have a deal. We have a deal. I like it. <laughs> Very good. That's the first piece of news coming out of this podcast. Kay is coming to Belgium. All righty. So where are we starting, Paul? There's so much to start with. What, what's your first question? I know. Well, maybe just help us understand a bit better what Noib is. I mean, everybody can, can look at the website and read all the, the promo materials that, that you have on there. But what is Noib? How do you work? What do you do? How many are you? Just Okay, I'm going to throw something on top of Paul's question. What is Noib not? Ah, that's also an interesting question. Noib is, first of all, I think a very difficult name to pronounce. I think we can all agree on that, right? And I think <laughs> PR-wise, it was quite of a success because... People are still struggling to understand and to pronounce NOIB. So NOIB stands, as you explained, Paul, for none of your business. But it's also there is a nice, serious, more serious, let's say, uh, name for NOIB, as you can see. It's also European Center for Digital Rights. And I think it's more uh, self-explanatory for the, for the non-lawyers and the non-privacy experts. Uh, so none of your business is basically, of course, focusing on privacy, but also on digital rights. It's an NGO funded by Max Schrems that I think all the people a little bit acquainted with privacy already heard. If they don't, they need to go learn it. Maybe they could. But, you know, we just still meet some candidates, for example, applying to Neub and not really knowing everything about Schrems 1 and Schrems 2. And so it's still interesting to see that not everybody, not everybody is on the same page regarding the case law of the Court of Justice. So Max decided to founded the NGO, I think, four years ago. For the anecdote, because he loved to explain it, I think he, he wanted to commit to found the NGO if it was reaching, I think, 2,000 members. And he was not really lucky because it was above 2,000 members after two months. So he had to do it. So <laughs> he made a promise and he had to do it. And he's like, okay, no, I have to do it. I have no choice. I have to set up this NGO. And he did. Nice. And I think it's really a nice project that he, he wanted to do three weeks ago. Three years ago, sorry, I think there were just two of us, the two of them with the office manager, Monica, setting up the office, installing the tables, you know. And after three years, we are an NGO focusing on strategic litigation, meaning you don't do lobbying on, on or policy making. We do strategy litigation, which is basically a filing complaint with the DPAs, but also court litigation. It's going to be, I guess, next year, one of the most the, the main development in our activity I would be I would say court litigation instead of DPA litigation. We are now a team of six permanent lawyers in the legal team. We have three to four trainees supporting our team and are not really supporting. They're really part of the team of the the legal team. On top of that we have also two communication managers, one office manager, one accountant, and three tech guys, even 
I would say even like four tech people. And I'm sure I forgot one of them who just arrived one month ago is also assisting with the admin and other stuff. So we see we're kind of a huge team because they started only with two people three years ago. And we are now, I think, 16. So it's kind so of. So the tech uh, people you, you mentioned are those tech people supporting you like an IT department or are they really doing the technical work in, in your investigation? In exactly. So they are, yeah, it's really full stack. So it's, first of all, they also basically support us with the IT stuff, but it's not really their job. It's not really what they are, I think, hired for because we can also do it ourselves. And usually the tech thing is also done by the lawyers and it's very important to be, you know, multidisciplinary. And a nice example of the the work of the tech people in our team is the cookie complaint. And I'm sure we're going to talk about it. It's I think it's on a legal tech perspective, and especially in my experience, I've never seen that in my life. It's this interaction between law and technology and technology and law, because you usually do technology law, but not really, you know, legal tech as such. And I think the cookie project was really a nice interaction between the legal team and the tech people that we have in Noib. Pretty cool interaction, I would say, because they, they really developed the tool to analyze, legally speaking, all the cookie policy of the website, as you know. Sorry, I'm maybe too long in explaining that already, but I really think that's, that's a nice advantage that we have at Noib to have tech people really understanding what is the privacy aspect and also having a lawyer and a legal team who just can dialogue very easily with the tech people that we have in our team. And the interaction is quite magical. When I see the tool, I, I remember the trainees arriving three months ago, we explained to them that is the tool that we're going to use for the cookie complaint. They were like, wow, guys, you should sell it to the other people. <laughs> but as you know, we are an NGO. We're not supposed to make profits. So we were like, okay. But you can sell source. it and, and still not count it as profit. We will give it, share it. Sharing is caring. That's right. Exactly. So that's what, what an NGO, as an NGO, that's why we do, doing complaints, uh, call litigation. We are funded by members, mainly by members. We have now more than 4,400 members supporting NOIBS. We also some uh, subsidies from the city of Wien. We are based in Vienna. It's also very interesting to mention. And we also cooperate with universities, other NGOs. We are a member of the uh, European Digital Right, the EDRI. I'm sure you know them, the NGO uh, based in Brussels, uh, which is doing basically all the advocacy and the policy work since we don't really uh, focus on this area. Basically, that's it. I think I, I, I hope it's giving you a nice idea of what is NOIB. About your question of what is not NOIB, I would say NOIB is not a DPA, and that a lot of people do not understand. And it's also funny because you see that we have a lot of emails from people writing to NOIB to ask, to ask us, what are you doing? You don't do anything against these people. This website is not compliant. Do your job. It's like, okay, guys, but we are not the DPAs. Like, we're doing <laughs> we're our NOIB. job. We're just an NGO. We're trying, we're trying to do that. <laughs> it's not really doing the job of the DPAs, you know, it's just like... As I think it's nicely explained on the website, it's really fitting the gap between the law and the practice. So it's really like supporting the work of, DP, uh, of DPAs and, and trying not to over, overwhelm the DPAs with all the complaints that we're doing. Because, you know, with the cookie complaint, we totally understood that it would be a, a huge burden for the DPAs to handle. So we're trying to make this compliance pre-notification. I'm sure you, you read about it. And so... The focus is not to enforce, absolutely, it's not to have fines, it's just to reach compliance. Uh, and I think the cookie complaint is also a nice example of what is the objective of NOIB. It's just reaching compliance, basically. Right. Very good. For full transparency, I should mention that I am a member of NOIB, member number 29, if I ah, look at my membership card. Nice. So I, well, you can make up for that. 
It's nice to mention it because for all the people listening to this podcast, I think it's really easy to become a member. Just go to Noib.eu and you will just find easily how to become a member and a supporting member of Noib. So we always accept donations for sure. Do you have members in the U.S.? We have a lot of members in the U.S. actually. We have a lot. I think the majority of the members are coming from Austria and Germany. And I think we have a lot of members coming from the U.S. and the rest of Europe, even Japan, in all continents, I would say. That's fabulous. We have a lot of members. We even have members from China, I think, six months ago. I don't even know why. So it's really interesting to see. It really is really cool. And a lot of members from the U.K., yeah. Yeah, probably because China is starting to exactly yeah. about privacy right so, now. So it's really the community of members who are supporting Noib and they are and it's also not supporting financially. It's it's really interesting and it's super cool to see people writing, Oh guys, after the Schrems two decision, I must I must tell you this anecdote. in July we received these emails of people that are like, Guys, it's the best fifty euros I ever invested in my life. And it's so great to read this kind of email when you work for an NGO, you know? You remember saying, oh, guys, it's so great. Thank you. And it's, it's really rewarding. Yeah. I can only imagine, although I, it also gave us a lot of headaches, oh, the, I know. the decision, not unexpectedly and probably with, with good reason, but finding good answers to the questions raised by the court and the challenges set by the court is still quite difficult. Yeah, But there's no reason. So what is... <laughs> no, no, not at all. no, of course. Come on. I think everybody's doing his job. As you know, it's not Max or, or Noy who just decided on the case. So it's just, it's a long story. You know, like I think we had to go back to the court for a second time. And a lot of people are asking, is it going to be a frames three? And I can promise you that the first persons who do not want to have a frame three, it's maybe the legal team at Noy. <laughs> so we would prefer to avoid a, a litigation at the court for the third time, for sure. But as you know, okay, it has to be done. But I really can assure you that I think it's not really a walk in the park to go to the Court of Justice, and especially not for the third time and for the same. Yeah. Of course. So, Roman, what from, from all the things that you have done, because even though Noib is a young organization, the number of of projects that you have run so far are, are quite, quite large. What is your favorite to date? You mean my favorite personally? Yeah. Actually, I... Okay, it's really, it's really tough to answer. I would say, because this may be my personal litigation case, the, the case that I had against the Luxembourg DPA, where basically the Luxembourg DPA decided that against this company, Apollo, and Rocket Reach, uh, this, this company, you know, this website, scraping the internet, LinkedIn, and all these social media websites to collect data and to sell them to companies based in the EU. And basically, the DPS had said, guys, I, I can't do anything anyway, because they, these companies, they are not established in the EU, and they don't have a representative in the EU. And, and as, an, as an NGO focusing on enforcement of privacy, because Maybe now I have the answer to the question that you just asked five minutes, minutes ago. We are focusing, of course, on enforcement of, of data protection. That's the main objective of NOIB. We could not leave this unanswered by the DPA. So mm -hmm. we, go, we went to court and we're just now waiting for the answers of the CNDP, which is the Luxembourg DPA, to know what they have to say about this lack of enforcement. Because just saying that basically these people are not based in the EU, they don't have any representative, so therefore we cannot say anything. It's a little bit, you know... Um, Disingenuous. Yeah. So I think I, I like this case because it just shows that even if DPAs, and I totally understand the difficulty for a DPA to enforce a decision 
outside of the EU, it doesn't prevent you to adopt a decision against these people. And then the enforcement, enforcement of the decision is another aspect. You know, in, but in the first phase, you have to issue the decision. And then we will see and we will figure it out how to enforce it against these people. Well, because isn't part of the question the fact that what was the company that we talked about before, Paul? LocateMyFamily.com. It's the same thing. Exactly. That they should have had a representative appointed in the EU and they didn't. So they're violating GDPR there by not appointing someone. And clearly they're offering their products or services to individuals in the EU. So it's interesting the tactic that they take there. So I hope you get the right outcome for the decision. But it seems to me that you need the decision made if they're offering goods and services to EU and if they were wrong on their own self-evaluation as to whether or not they are. I mean, having a few individuals in the EU doing business with them doesn't make you subject to GDPR. But if you have lots of individuals in the EU doing business, then you know you have individuals doing no, business. No, totally. We can, we can prove it. We just can prove they just address their business to the EU citizen, to companies, and a lot of EU companies are using the services. So they just pretend they are not subject to the GDPR. But as you say, it's very interesting. We was in our submission with the, with the Luxembourg DPA we totally refer to the Locate family of the Netherlands, saying like, guys, your colleague DBAs in the Netherlands did the opposite. They just decided against this company, even if they didn't have a representative. And also because they didn't have a representative. You cannot use the breach of the GDPR as an excuse to get away with murder, right? So that's basically what they say, guys, they are violating the GDPR and therefore we cannot do anything, which is even worse. It's really... And are they a B2C company or a B2B? It was a B2, uh, B2B. Then maybe so they we are will just... get that question answered, Paul. <laughs> yeah, we are still we are still debating heavily the question about the relation between Article three two of the GDPR and Chapter five. And so who is not? Yeah. When is a transfer a transfer? And what is a transfer actually? You know, because if you know the answer, I will just send you the gluten free waffle immediately. <laughs> oh. No, I would well, love to I mean, know what is a transfer. I think it's a fair price, right? What is I, I a transfer so. and gluten free waffle? I think yeah. it's really. Yeah. It's a yeah. fair. Well, let us debate a, a bit deal. more, and then we'll come up. We'll come, we'll give you an answer in Brussels. And Perfect. let me quit drooling here. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned already a few times the Cookie Project, analyzing and assessing ten thousand websites for compliance before the end of the year. What's the current number? How many have you completed? So far, as you see, uh, I'm sure you've read it already. We just been through, I would say, at least one thousand websites, just to. To be correctly understood, we, I think we announced that we would just do 10,000 complaints within one year, but not before the end of the year. So otherwise, we would be totally overwhelmed and <laughs> we don't want these people to go in, into burnout, right? So I think it should be before next summer, let's say. We would have 10,000 complaints run by the system, this, this really wonderful system just built by the, 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 the tech teams at Noib. Uh, of course, we will also more than probably switch to another cookie banner, the, the one of OneTrust, and I think it's not a surprise. We just have to reprogram the, the tool that we developed to, to allow it to analyze other cookie banners. Of course, teaser, we don't know which is going to be next, but I guess the message is that all should be prepared, right? <laughs> it's a fair game. But I think uh, everybody understood the rules. So far, we have the nice, I think you saw it, I guess, we have the nice feedback. I mean, in terms of compliance, I think we're just approaching 50% of compliance from the websites to which we send the notification, the pre, you know, the warning, whatever you call it, the warning notification to say, guys, if you don't comply within one month, 
we're going to file a complaint with the DPA. Only a few of them say, this is blackmail, this is unacceptable, you know. <laughs> and, but, but, yeah. Only a few, which is being compliant with the law is not blackmailing. Yes, yeah, so like, okay. So we're like, this is blackmailing. We don't even ask money, guys. <laughs> Maybe we should ask, like, yeah. Belgian waffles, of course. I would love right, it exactly. because I miss them a lot in Vienna. Waffles yeah. will get you real, I would, yeah, I would totally accept Belgian French, uh, the French fries, you know, the, the real Belgian French fries and waffles. Oh. This is, would be a nice blackmail. And the rest of the answers and the feedback that you answer was mostly positive. So a lot of people and companies and websites answer that. They would comply or they already complied. Some, oh, and it's also interesting, but it's a legal word, right? They basically say, oh, we changed uh, the cookie banner, but it's, of course, without any um, helping with that. Any evidence? No, no, a- any recognition of any kind, you know, like. Ah, got it. We, we, we changed it and we complied, but you didn't send exactly. out new letters. We changed say, it, yeah. but of course, we were already compliant. But we changed it just to be nice. So right. I think it's also interesting. But so I think the success of the, 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 this campaign is also that we tried to avoid as much as possible to find a final complaint with the DPAs, right? And at the end of the day, we will also see how, much, how many of these websites will comply during the proceeding with the DPAs. Well, just uh, on a personal note, depending on which cookie banner you go to next, feel free to add in there that your cookie banner provider provides the ability to be compliant. Just exactly, and that's do. and I'm sure you've said it, you've seen it as well. So we were even providing a little guide how to be compliant and how to you know configure it and 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 just. Do yeah, the we've done that right. for our customers, yeah. obviously, exactly, too. Yeah. I mean, so we had these little guys. The project was really huge. It was a lot of work, like for yeah. A huge month is really, it was really a team effort. It's really, it was a really interesting project, I would say. The trainees were totally involved as well. And we were like, you know, going through the web pages for the whole day, like for even like two or three weeks, because I was also doing that as well. So we were basically all data subjects. So we were the, the one on behalf of it was filing the complaints. And I think we did all at least 200 pages. Wow. In different countries, we had to translate. Of course, we had to translate all these templates. You know, how, I guess it was maybe clear on the website how it worked. So we made the legal team made a template with all the violation. You know, we had several violations in the templates. And the tool, the IT tool developed by our colleagues, basically only copy, copied and pasted this part of the template, which corresponded to the violation that the IT tool spotted on, on the website. So it's Impressive. really a great work. And but you still needed a human in- intervention, of course, to go on a website to copy and paste the address of the controller, the email address to whom uh, to which we have to send a pre-notification email, and also the, the the data subjects or the member of the team were also agreed with the computer or not on the violation. So the computer is making a pre-assessment of the violation, and as a human, of course, you can see whether you agree with the computer or not. And sometimes, no fully automated decisions. Exactly. Yeah. Not subject to Article 22. Not subject GDPR. to Article 22. <laughs> Don't be afraid. It has been checked. <laughs> well, and, okay, I'm curious. When you say that you had to have a human go to the sites to pull up, how do you contact the company to let them know? How many sites was it really easy to find that contact information? And were there sites that they didn't have the contact information available? I just had the example ne- la- last week. I wanted to explain to an ex-colleague from the DPS how it worked. And I've been to this website. I don't remember in which country it was. It was impossible to find an email or even the address of the controller. It was really a nightmare to find it. So in this case, we, also, we can also use the form because, you know, that's usually these people would not provide any email can be contacted through a form. So the system just allows to contact the, the, the website through the form. 
But it's true that in some instances, but it's not that many, I would say like 3%, not more. It's really a nightmare to find any details at all to send the pre-notification. That's true. Which yeah. is in any way a violation, as you know, of either the, mm -hmm. the e-commerce or the GDPR anyway. So the e-commerce directive, you know, providing the obligation to, to notify and to provide your address, your contact details and an easy way to contact you. Yeah, it's not so, supposed to be an Easter egg hunt. It's supposed to be very simple for individuals exactly. to know who to contact. Exactly. But as a privacy professional, when you which is a struggle to find this information, it means it is not good, right? So, so. Yeah, right. Because you know where to look, exactly, generally. Yeah. Generally. Exactly. So how do you deal with the, the language requirements? Are you corresponding with these companies all in English, or are you making translations? That's uh, the, the beauty of it. So we were, that's why we were working so, so much. We had to translate these templates in, I think, if I remember well, nine languages. Wow. So the main languages of the EU, yeah, in even in Portuguese, Bulgarian uh, is crazy. The email. But those are languages that are spoken within the office of Neu. But yeah, we were lucky enough, to, lucky enough to have Bulgarian trainees at this time. We we have we can deal with cases in Polish, Spanish, Italian, German, French, Dutch, German, obviously. Let me think, Italian for sure. Bulgarian at this time back then, covering a lot of jurisdictions yeah. mm -hmm. already, right? And we had to translate all the notification to the controller is in each of these languages, the templates, obviously, so the complaints themselves, we you know that we cannot come, you cannot find anything in at the CNIL in Portuguese, right? I think it's fair enough. And we had to translate the, the websites and, of course, the, the, the email to the DPAs, even if some DPAs accept to be contacted in English. But the complaint itself should be obviously in the language of the country when you fight a complaint. So that's also one of your challenges, I guess, to ensure that at NOIP as many languages as possible yeah. are spoken so that you can actually... Totally, totally. And that's why it's so important to cover more jurisdiction than only Austria and Germany, for obvious reasons, because it's ba we are based in Austria and most of the colleagues just speak German. We are filing mostly in Germany and in Austria. And of course, for the, one, for the 101 complaint, it's the same story. And for the cookies complaint, we file half of it in Austria to avoid the one-stop shop. Not to avoid the one-stop shop, but because the one-stop shop was not applicable. So we could file it directly in Austria. But it's true that if you want to file a complaint, for example, in Poland, Poland is an interesting country because even the, the communication with the Polish DPA is quite funny, I would say. Because they still send us registered letter, so we just received oh, wow. uh, last week. I had to I had to find to sign twenty five registered letter, uh, paper letter that I haven't seen for years. <laughs> I had to <laughs> sign every every of them, and to return them to the Polish DPA to to confirm that our complaints were received. That's an interesting interesting issue. And they were twenty five different envelopes instead of being efficient exactly. and putting them all yeah. so in one envelope. To see how And it's interesting to, to work at now because you can see how the DPAs are working. You know, the different DPAs have different methods. And apparently Poland is still stuck in, in a paper mail. So that's a lot of work for sure. Not only for the languages, but also to, to do the admin of the follow-up of this complaint. For sure. But of course, you and I already had quite some experience of how the various DPAs work. And exactly. could see a lot of their approaches also in all those Working Party 29 meetings. But... I guess things have evolved a little as well since we both left. Yeah, yeah, it's true because Paul and I, maybe we didn't mention it, we were working together, right, Paul? 
Well, I mean, people know that I worked uh, at DPA by yeah. now, and, and I mentioned you did. So I, I think a lot of people uh, may have realized that we, okay. we know each other from, from previous lives. No, but it's, it's, it's interesting to see how, how indeed DPAs are dealing with, with the various issues. And I must say, I'm, I'm not sure what that is for you, but I'm surprised how long these investigations all take. From, from what I recall, back in the days of the Data Protection Directive, things seem to go faster than they currently do. I would agree. I would agree. And it's not only the one-stop shop, I think. I would say that... Are DPAs becoming more thorough? I think so. I think so. They feel the pressure. And I think I, it's very difficult to be an DPA. And as you know, I have this double hat. Like I also an external member of the Belgian DPA as well. Of course, avoiding any case which might involve like a conflict of interest with no cases, of course, but they still leave a lot of other cases on the table. And it's really difficult for a DPA as well to deal with all these complaints because the GDPR just, you know, reach another level of awareness by the data subject, I think. And a lot of people are just fighting complaints with the DPAs, and it's very difficult for them to, to, to deal with all these complaints. It's, it's new to them. I think it's new. They have to invent new procedures, new process, the cooperation mechanism, the one-stop project is new to them as well. We must admit it. And they never receive, or rarely receive additional resources. So it's a struggle for them. It's really, it's really, it's, it's, I really think it's the problem with the enforcement as well. It's not only the one-stop shop, it's not only the lack of will from some DPA that we will not name here, but, you know, it's also the whole system, which is poorly designed, I would say. It's really difficult for them to enforce it efficiently. And that's why I think we are now turning to the court. That would be a new strategy for and, and maybe it's not, I wanted to share it with you, Paul, like, I'm happy to announce that we are now, we, we are planning and we are now in the final stage of creating a foundation in the Netherlands under the Wabenka, you know, Class Action Act to yeah. be able, so we will work with Privacy First and other NGOs in the Netherlands. So we kind of expanding to the Netherlands, so, so to say, and this foundation will be able to launch class actions in the Netherlands. On the same note, we also qualified as a qualified entity, as, as it is called, in Belgium to also be able to start collective redress in, in Belgium. Belgium was the only country where non-Belgian, non-national entities would be able to qualify. So we just applied. And after two weeks, we had our letter from the minister saying, Noib, you can now start class actions in Belgium as well. So we are the only entity with the consumer organization in Belgium to be able to launch class action. So we are really following this path to go to the courts. And of course, waiting the implementation of the Collective Redress Directive in two or three years. That will be the, the path, the way to go. Yeah, the sure. Netherlands is a bit of a front runner there, apparently. And class actions for privacy have suddenly become very much in focus. I think there are five or six ongoing at the moment. One that I think we discussed before from the Privacy Collective against Oracle and one other company for ad tracking. And I think... Today, the fourth class actions, uh, action uh, against TikTok was announced. Exactly. There are four different multi-billion euro class actions against TikTok right now. So any recommendation, if you are to start class actions here in the Netherlands, maybe choose a different target because the courts will deal with TikTok already. already. That's covered. But we don't worry. We already have a case and we have a target. Good. And you're not going to name them, I guess. Of course not. <laughs> 
Well, it's always it's a little bit of a teasing, yeah. <laughs> but I hope I can. Um, I'm going to be able but to. Somebody should be scared right now. Somebody. That's what I hope. Yeah. But no, not scared. You know, it's just we'll see. We'll see. But we have a case. It's a strong case, and I really believe it's going to work. We'll see. And I hope that we're going to be a, a little bit more advanced in this uh, foundation in, in in a few weeks, and I will be able to tell more uh, uh, the IPP in Brussels if we meet. That's a little bit the, the aim, yeah, to be ready by then to to give the name and everything. We just found a nice name, a nice case, nice member of the board. You know, it's a nice project. I really think it's a nice project, yeah. Sounds very promising. So so what else is next for Noid? What other investigations are are pending that maybe you can already mention or what's what's coming? Oh, what's coming? That's a nice question. So now we're just trying to do the follow-up on the cookies complaint for sure. So that's the first thing. As you, I think as you can imagine, it was a lot of work, but it's still a lot of work to follow up. So we said have to also to follow up on a one-on-one complaint, you know, the transfer complaint, because I think it's the main, I think that's the problem, how to put it. It's, you know, we had the Schrems 1 and the Schrems 2, and as you know, enforcement is not following. As so far, we've seen only one decision from the Portuguese DPA, if I'm not wrong. Um, Norway as well. Norway as well. Sorry, I didn't follow that. The Norway toll road provider who was fined 5 million Norwegian kroner for transfers to China without even an SEC in place. Exactly, there was not even an SEC. Yeah, but in this case, it's so simple that, yeah, okay, you're right. But you know what I mean? It's so obvious that. <laughs> but in the other case, like the, at least with the Portuguese DPA, you had like a kind of, you had a mechanism, a transfer mechanism in place, but it was not sufficient, I think. But so far, no other decision, right? So. It's nice to have a Schrems 1 and a Schrems 2, but you don't see anything enforced on the DBA level. And Maybe that's it's also just another. Time to work its no, way no, 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 no. It's not taking time. When you see the first reaction, <laughs> it's not when you see the first reaction, for example, of Microsoft that I think just Max made a nice tweet about. You could see that the reaction was not really going in the, side, the, the good direction. Yeah. Like they were just, you know, uh, explaining that they would not use. As Paul mentioned, the Article 3.2 is really complex. But we don't see any enforcement decision. And again, it would be nice to go to court to maybe not bypass, but just to have an opinion and an enforcement, an actual enforcement of a course. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, the court cannot not decide. They have to take a decision. And maybe it's going to be even quicker than, and faster than a decision and a procedure before an NEDPA. Just to give you an example, and I refer to the website of NOIB, you can see that, for example, in a complaint that we just uh, filed two and a half years ago, a really simple access request. We're still waiting to have the appointment of the lead authority by the Dutch GPA. That's the, the case on the streaming? The Netflix, the streaming complaint. Yeah, we're still waiting. And I'm sorry, but do you need to, do, to, to be a privacy expert to know that Netflix is based in the Netherlands? Do you need two years and a half? I'm just surprised. And then we're supposed to say that one stop shop is working. I'm sorry, but something is broken, right? It's really crazy to, to wait two years and a half. Not even mentioning the other complaints that we have when the, the DPAs lost the complaint, when, for example, in Bulgaria, when we never received any answer from the Bulgarian DP after 101 complaint, apparently they only received one complaint, even though we just sent the four complaints in the same email. So, you know, it's, it's really, it's sometimes yeah. a little bit uh, yeah, Government. discouraging so to see how enforcement is followed. But on the transfer note, of course, it's, you know, it's tiring to go to the Court of Justice twice and still waiting for enforcement. Because I understand, Kay, you say as it's a lot, it takes time, but Schrems 2 is nothing but new. Schrems 1 right. was already quite clear, right? 
And Shames one was like seven years ago. And nothing, yeah. nothing, nothing has been done. So, yeah, it takes time. But seven years, it's a lot of time, in my opinion. It is. And I think part of this may be one of the things that we discussed way, way early on is that here in the U.S., the attorneys are going to argue the meaning of every single word and every single comma and the placement of everything. And so the guiding decisions that are going to come out, and this was back when GDPR first came in, as we discussed, were probably not going to be the large companies because the large companies were going to fight everything. It was going to be more small to medium companies. But the DPAs did not go after the small and medium companies to begin with. And so part of it might be related to that, but I agree with you. I, I think it, at some point you have to say, seriously, y'all, this is taking weight. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's not a nice, and again, it's not a nice pace for the DPAs as well. And you see the EPB guidelines struggling to find what the hell is supplementary measures. <laughs> I totally understand. Like, okay, thank mm-hmm. you, court, but what is it? So they're struggling to give some hints, but it's well, so difficult for them to understand. Well, not even what are they, but what are the right ones? What are the wrong ones? Well, what are the right ones? ones? Obviously, yeah. And we had a recent decision of the Council of State last week in Belgium, Kind of saying, okay, guys, I just see that EDPB just said that kind of encryption was okay. I don't, I don't even know in which use case they were just used, but it seems to be okay. You can transfer the data to, the, to Amazon in the US. It's fine. It's, it's encrypted. And in clear address, what, I don't care. It's fine. Go. So you see, it's still a lot to learn from the judges as well. But it's, it's, it's normal, right? It's, it's a process. So we cannot expect, it's not because we go to court that we will have you know, a real enforcement of the claims too. Yeah. So it's just another way. I'm not sure it's going to work immediately. It's, it's, we have to wait for that for sure. But I will tell you, the encryption question is interesting because you see a lot of companies asking, well, is it encrypted from you? So only we see it. And I'm not talking about TrustArc specifically, just in general. Is so an individual using the services. So all my data is encrypted from the company providing the services. No, no. Most companies providing the service, you can't have the data encrypted to them. They're not a storage like Amazon, where you're just putting the data in there and Amazon doesn't have to do anything except store it in the servers. Usually the company that's hosting your data is actually doing something with it, and which means it can't be encrypted from them. Exactly. That's true. And then even end-to-end encryption only covers the data itself and not the metadata, only what was it yesterday? So that was on, on Monday, the 6th of September. Proton Mail, which is a very respected mail client out of Switzerland, had to admit that they were tracking the IP addresses following a warrant from a court in one specific case for a French environmental because IP addresses are not part of the end-to-end encryption. Right. They usually don't store them, but now they were under court order to provide the information. So they had to give it. But it is still a big row because this is a company that admittedly has a name for being yep. privacy-friendly, for being privacy activist. Recommend suddenly, them when people ask. Not, not officially Well, I still Trust like Art, them. And I mean, me. at the same time, nobody is, is above the law. So if you get a court order that tells you to comply and the court order is valid, you can fight it. But in the end, you will need to listen to a final ruling of the court. Yeah, exactly. Well, and the fact that people need to understand there are certain parts of encrypted messages that can't be encrypted, such as a phone number for a text message or an email for an email. 
message because you can't encrypt those in order for them to be delivered. Got to know exactly. where to send it's, it. No, it's, it's a difficult, it's a tough one, of course, for the judges as well. And no, and and we have to admit that it's a difficult question for sure. And I think it's nice to work together that instead of like pretending that everything is fine and there is encryption. And that's a little bit the message that we heard, right? And a message that, for example, we hated and I personally hated so much is this this new concept of transfer impact assessment. <laughs> I hate it so much. I, I, I'm sorry, but I read the GDPR like 1,000 times and I've never seen any impact and risk-based approach in the transfer. So it's really something that at no, we're trying to avoid so much because we have a lot of answer from the importer and the exporters trying to pretend that it was such a thing as the transfer impact assessment, which I think is a nice buzzword invented by the CIPL or whatever. But it's not something to be found in the GDPR. But it's a nice try because it worked. But it's I'm nothing. I'm not sure I agree with you. Of actually. course, Paul. I do see. But you wanted I to have a provocative, discre- provocative discussion, right? You have it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I do. I do see foundations in the in the GDPR for a risk-based approach to international transfers. Whereas I'm doing wonderful blank face here. Yeah, no, but uh. that doesn't mean that you can just say you did a risk assessment and leave it at that. You need to do it it properly document the risks, mitigate the risks. But I do see that, that there is some basis for it. But I see, but that, I think it depends. That's a whole different discussion. It depends on the definition of what is a risk-based approach then. I think there it's the I whole agree. point. Yeah, it's the whole point, I think. It's really that. It's, we don't talk about the same thing. I think not the three of us, uh, but like <laughs> when you have really good conferences, you can see yes. that we don't have the same understanding of what is exactly. a risk-based approach. And that's the, I think that's the problem. Get three privacy professionals in a room and have how many opinions? Exactly. Seven, eight. <laughs> exactly. That's really a thing. But I, I, we are coming towards the end of our recording time, Roman. Anything that you haven't shared with us yet that you were told to or wanted to, <laughs> uh, to. wanted to share during the? Uh, the I was podcast. not told to say anything. I'm still a free man. <laughs> what hopefully. were you afraid we were going to ask that we didn't? Oh, nothing. I, I was not really afraid. I was just curious. Like I was like, so far so good. So just. Bring it on. <laughs> I want to hear the tough ones. No, I think Ooh, I, it's a nice announcement that we, could, that we could say. I'm happy to announce that we are hiring now. We just published last week. Thank you. We just published two openings for legal positions. So two legal positions for GDPR lawyers, experts. We see mid-level senior experts to join the team. And also a full-stack developer. Nice. So I invite you to go on the website and to apply. We, we just opened a position like one or two weeks ago. So we're just receiving application right now. And I would encourage anyone listening to the podcast, if you're, you know, feeling that you have some sharing the objective and the, and the, and the, the spirit of NOI, but that you like what NOI is doing, it's time for you to join. If you're a bit of an activist. And that's an interesting question as well that you were mentioning, uh, Paul, because it's interesting to see that we are considered as activists. It's crazy. Would you say that about Berg, a consumer organization? You just say there are lawyers working for consumer organization. When the people talk about Neub or Max Krebs, it's a privacy activist. It's crazy. So when you're just trying to enforce privacy, you're an activist. And when like Google or Facebook, you're reaching the law, you call innovative or creative. <laughs> so it's really interesting well, to see. As I would say in proper English, c'est le ton qui fait la musique. Exactly. And you never hear Bayouk. <laughs> to no. be blunt, no, you, you um, be here. they put out some press releases, but mm-hmm. you make sure that the world hears what you are doing, and I think 
That's that's. Yeah, um, but if it's the definition of an activist, I would say it's good PR. You know what I mean? But I, yeah. I, 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 and for me, an activist is something positive. Of course, it's, it's positive, it's but I think it's usually uh, used by. Some people to say, yeah. oh, these activists, they are crossing the line. They are going too far. Guys, we just file complaints. We're not making the decision. It's the same as a consumer organization. A law firm is not doing differently. We just represent consumers. Yeah, and we just represent consumers and data subjects. And we go to court or to DPAs to defend the interest. A law firm is not doing otherwise. And they are not called activists, right? So that that's something true. that I want to... Yeah, they should know. <laughs> so an interesting, an interesting term that we use a lot. And I'm not sure I'm totally convinced with this notion to be called an activist. As you say, it's positive, but I'm just afraid that it's used in a way that I don't really like. We're just doing the job of other people like law firms and everything. Just well, doing the job. I think that's they're, a they're, great note to end on. So if you want to join an organization which is for some activists, for some just an enforcement organization, just go on our website. I think it's a great team to work. Vienna is amazing. And I really think I'm, I'm so happy to have joined OI one year and a half. I think it was the best move that I ever made. Uh, and I'm so happy to, to work with wonderful people. And it's so nice. And I want to mention as well, but I think I just did it in the beginning of the podcast that I'm so happy to see you because I'm listening to you podcast every week on my little bike going to the office. And I love to hear your voice. And I think you have a great show. It's really nice to hear you. you. It's so fun to hear wow. you. It's even more fun this time with you on board. But, it, you know, hearing privacy and listening to privacy and having fun is not that often. And I think it's so cool to have that with you. No, I think it's so great. Like, it's, it's, you, you learn a lot. Like, you really learn a lot by listening to your podcast. And I think that people will learn a lot today, not on, only about badge and waffles, but also it's fun. <laughs> well, spread the word. And on that note, thank you, Romain, for joining us this week. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you for having me. It was a thanks real pleasure. Thanks to all our listeners for joining us for yet another episode of Serious Privacy. If you like us, please do tell your friends and colleagues about us. Rate and review our episodes in your favorite podcast app or on your favorite podcast platform. Should you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to reach out to us via Serious Privacy at TrustArc.com or ping us at our LinkedIn page, just look for Serious Privacy, or via Twitter at, at Podcast Privacy. You will find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as Europe4B. Until next week, goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was serious privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming 
for compliance excellence. Check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions.